Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Welcome to the Theater Podcast, intimate personal conversations with theater's biggest names. I'm your host, Alan Seals. And I'm your producer, Jillian Hockman. And I'm losing my voice. It's okay. You sound great. You sound great. Well, I don't really need it. And it's only, you know, a podcast thing that yeah, I'm doing here. You can be the first silent podcast host. All right, here we go. Here's my silent podcasting. All the awards. Yes, I love it. We invented something new. Okay. So this episode is with Tom Kitt. Uh, Jillian, uh, what did you think about this one? I really, really love Tom's authenticity. Uh, he is a, a great composer and a great um, all-around music guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I've, I love Next to Normal. I love so many of his shows. And I love how real they always feel. Uh, they are uh, just, they come from the human experience. And he is just such a great writer. And and you get all the feels when you listen to his music. <laughs> yeah, he... He he was literally just a kid. Um, well, a kid to me. Uh, he was in his mid twenties when he wrote "Next to Normal," um, and and that is similar to "Superhero," which just opened at Second Stage. But we actually get into this in the podcast. And he's now forty five, uh, having written "Superhero." He looks at things from the other side of of parenthood. Does, was that apparent um, to you? I guess listening to "Next to Normal" and then listening to the interview, like what did what did oh, you yeah. feel about that? Yeah, but he also you can tell where he's he's coming from, but you also can see that he understands the the various perspectives and the way that different people feel, and he can empathize and put himself in situations that make it so anyone can love his art, even if you are not the the 45-year-old man or the mm-hmm. 25-year-old kid who wrote the show, it, it doesn't matter. Right. It's It was actually surprising to me as a true reflection here um, that he has he doesn't have a set way of approaching a project. Uh, he said that sometimes he writes the music first, sometimes he writes the lyrics first, sometimes he's handed something where stuff is partially written and he just, he just goes with it. Sometimes he writes the music and then has to fit the script into that. However, inspiration strikes. Just, I, just get it out. I guess it works. I mean, the dude's got a Pulitzer for this stuff, so and a you know, couple Tonys and a couple Tonys and lots of a very uh, nice shelf, <laughs> a very nice shelf of things in his house. I'm sure. Um, yeah. So everybody, please enjoy this episode here with the one and only Tom Kitt. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Here you go. One, two, three. 
So this bio here, actually, I have to admit, was mostly stolen from MTIShows.com because it was the best write-up that I could find. Okay. And uh, for for length, uh-huh. I, I shortened it. And uh, this is, even as long as it still is, it's still the highlights. So <laughs> I cannot wait to get into this stuff with you. But uh, he has received the 2010 Pulitzer Pulitzer Prize for, the, for drama, as well as two Tony Awards for Best Score and Best Orchestration for Next to Normal. He's also the composer of If Then, which also got a Tony nomination and Outer Critics nomination, High Fidelity, Bring It On, and uh, Bring It On the Musical with Lin-Manuel, co-composer with Lin-Manuel Miranda, among many others. Uh, He's a composer, arranger, orchestrator, whose credits include SpongeBob SquarePants the Musical, which was also a Tony nomination for him, an Outer Critics nomination, and Drama Desk nomination, Head Over Heels, Jagged Little Pill, Grease Live, American Idiot, and then his work with Green Day also includes additional arrangements for their Grammy award-winning album, 21st Century Breakdown. He's received an Emmy Award as a co-writer, again with Lin-Manuel Miranda, for the 2013 Tony Award opening number, Bigger. He has TV songwriting credits, including Royal Pains, Penny Dreadful, and Sesame Street, one of my kids' personal favorites, of course. Um, as a musical director, conductor, arranger, and orchestrator, credits include Pitch Perfect films, two cellos featuring Lang Lang, uh, the Kennedy Center Honors 13, so much more. And then upcoming projects include musical adaptations of the films Almost Famous, Magic Mike, and The Visitor, and his work is currently, well, Currently, at the time this will air, but at the time of recording, about to open tomorrow at Second Stage, a musical called Superhero, Tom Kit. Oh my gosh, thank you for being here with me, and thank you for sitting through that that (laughs) wonderful monologue. Thank you for reading that (laughs) and for having me today. So on this podcast, we like to start uh, at the very beginning of of your life and your interest and everything. Um, So where did you grow up? I grew up on Long Island in Port Washington. I lived there until I was 13. And then my parents moved us to uh, the Banksville area of Westchester, which is right between Bedford and Greenwich, Connecticut. And uh, I went to school in Armonk. So the the Armonk, New York area uh, is where I spent high school. And uh, I started playing the piano when I was four years old. My brother and sister were both were both playing and I just started to sit down and play things that I was hearing in the house. And what I found out later is that I have perfect pitch, which basically means that I can hear a note and just tell you immediately what it is. And it helps me figure things out pretty quickly on the piano by ear. Um, So uh, I was four years old. My mother took me to the teacher that was instructing my brother and sister. And she said, I think, I think he's too young. I don't normally work with, with kids that age. But I sat down and played for her, and uh, and she took me on as a student, and I started training classically. Uh, I was pretty much strictly classical until about 12, 13. I was writing um, music, writing classical pieces, and then I went to a camp called Camp Alton, which sadly is no longer around, but um, it was uh, on Lake Winnipesaukee in New Hampshire. A number of camps are up there, and it was run by a man named Peter Gorelnik, who is a um, very famous and um, well-renowned journalist, rock journalist, mm-hmm. and wrote books on Elvis Presley and Sam Cooke and soul music. And uh, he had uh, it, it was a, it was a sports camp. You would go up there and, and compete two teams over the course of the entire summer, but. Uh, there was a wonderful musical aspect, and there was a band that was based on the Blues Brothers called 
the Allman Brothers, and they were musicians who, during the year, played around and 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 were quite uh, talented. So they pulled me in as a 13-year-old kid who had never soloed before, and suddenly I was playing Sam and Dave and Ray Charles and <laughs> um, having the time of my life. And then another camper introduced me to Billy Joel, and I started listening to the the early Billy Joel albums, uh, Piano Man, Turnstile, Street Life Serenade. So I uh, I suddenly became obsessed with Billy Joel and subsequently Elton John and Simon and Garfunkel and James Taylor. And that's that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a singer-songwriter. So uh, through my years in high school, I was writing songs now and writing lyrics for the first time. And uh, and then uh, I went to Columbia, which is where I, I say I met uh, my uh, my two wives or my two spouses, uh, Rita Pietropinto, who uh, I'm still married to, um, happily... Uh, and uh, we just celebrated, or we're going to celebrate, 19 years this this year, which is which is wonderful. We have three children, and Rita introduced me to uh, Brian Yorkie, and uh, that changed my life because that's where I realized I wanted to write musicals. And uh, and Brian and I forged a um, a collaboration and a friendship, and all of that led to Next to Normal. Wow. That's that sort was, of a brief history. That was, that was sure, I could fill in more blanks. So, if my math is right, you got married at twenty six. Yes. Yeah. All right. And then year two thousand. So it's easy for me to uh, yes, <laughs> to yes, calculate because uh, tomorrow tomorrow is your birthday. Yeah. Tomorrow so happy, is my forty fifth birthday. Yes. Happy birthday. Thank you. Um, and and what a special birthday celebration that superhero is opening. Yeah. So, uh, tell me about that. What is what is superhero? So Superhero is a musical that um, uh, I, I came up with this idea, I think around 2009 or 2010. I've, I've always been obsessed with comics and superhero stories and origin stories. Um, from At the age of four, I, I remember my parents taking me to the original Superman film. And uh, I'll never forget the opening credits, the, the music, the names flying through space. I always thought, God, it would, you'd be the coolest person if your name was flying through space <laughs> to the music of John Williams. But um, I just remember the story and how gradual the telling of it was. There, it, Superman doesn't even come into the film until an hour in. There's so much beautiful story of of, of Clark Kent and how he's adopted by a, by two by a couple who could never have kids. The sad destruction of his of his planet and his parents sending him to safety. Um, it just had a, a hope and and a beauty and a stillness that um, I just thought I, I, I think there's a musical there in 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 the superhero genre, but maybe it it, it goes against a little bit what we expect. There's not a there's not a villain. There's not um, you know big action. It, it really speaks to um, what what I think superheroes represent in the world right now, which is um, the need to believe in something that that there are forces out there that are looking out for us. For me, as the father of three, I, I often shudder at the world and, and the things that I see and feel. It's 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 a hard world, it's a wonderful world, and you have to grab onto the the hope and the beauty. But um, we're we're shown images every day that that shake us, and and uh, I just felt like I wanted to put something out there for my kids that would speak to them, speak to um, the fact that I know as a parent I can't protect them from everything, but I'm going to do my best to be there for them always, and also that. I trust that they're they're going to go out into the world and and find their own way, and certainly as you as you become a parent, your your mortality becomes um, pretty clear. You know, you start to sense things in, in in new ways as as a parent, and 
I think all of those ideas were at the center of this. So I just was walking around with this with this small story of a family and 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 um, a mysterious person who moves into their building and um, perhaps or perhaps not is a, is a superhero. And I pitched that idea to, to John Logan, uh, John, the the brilliant writer of the play Red and and, and numerous. Um, wonderful screenplays. Um, John was looking to write a musical and I was brought into his office to have a general meeting and I've just pitched him this idea. And thankfully he, uh, he jokes that, uh, he did the thing your agents tell you never to do, which is he said, yes, <laughs> the right away. Yeah. And we started working on it and, and be, uh, beating the story out. And, and then John, uh, which is a great gift for, for, for me, especially, or I should say was a, gr- a, a great gift for me especially since I was um, writing, I wanted to take on the lyrics for the first time. John went and, and wrote a draft of the book and had song ideas. And, and in the, within those song ideas, he had um, dialogue, he had, he had conversations, monologues. There was so much for me to draw from. And, and the writing of this show just, just was always so easy. And nothing is easy, but I was just always so inspired about the subject matter and, and what John was, was creating. And uh, it's really been a privilege and a pleasure from day one. How... How does the process work for those of us who don't know, including myself for for a lot of this? Um, I come from the acting side of this mm-hmm. where, uh, you know, you get a casting call or, or it, you know, later on in the business, like your agent or your manager or whatever, they send you out and you you go there and you audition and like the song's already there and the script is right. mostly there and everything. But when you're starting from nothing, you you know, you go into a room and you pitch this. All right. So, so then what? Okay. He said, yes, you want to work on it. How long did it take before you started composing? It took a few years, um, and and uh, John lives on the West Coast, so there was a period after we had said we were going to do this that um, we got caught up in other things, um, but we reconnected. And I just remember John and I sitting together for a week and really talking through the story, talking through the characters. I can't say enough about what the book writer brings to the process. It's really, in in my opinion, the the unsung hero, not in terms of us in the community, we know how important it is, but um, it, it, it's, it's just, the, the, it's the lifeblood of the musical. The musical mm-hmm. does not work without the book, um, without, without a sound book. And um, so, so we knew that we didn't want to really start writing anything until we had the story. And of course it was going to change. I mean, it did. We, we, we threw out characters, created new ones, but the trio, the main trio at the center of this story uh, existed from day one. And John took that and ran with it. And um, as I said, he he created a, a whole book for me to work from. And uh, I, I think musicals happen in all different ways. Next to normal, we, we just started writing songs. We had a basic story um, and, and then we wrote a bunch of songs and had to go back and outline and figure out how we were gonna put them into the story. Um, and Brian and I would always laugh about that and say, well, this is the way not to do it, <laughs> but, but it worked out, uh, but took a number of years for us to cobble that together. Uh, and in this case, just for me, having, having been through the process, um, it just was, was very, uh, organic and methodical. And, um, as I said, I had so much to work with when I, when I started writing the first song. That's interesting. I, I was actually going to bring that up a little bit later, but you brought up next to normal, uh, you've had so much success. The show had so much success. And and I guess superhero. When I was reading the synopsis of superhero, I couldn't help but think that that it harkened back a little bit to kind of the general like dysfunctional family sort of uh, you know family personality issues that Next to Normal highlights. And is that 
was that on purpose or is, is that coming from a, a place inside you that that you may not want to talk about? I think that's something I'm drawn to as a writer. I think human connection, human themes, our frailty, um, our, our, our inability sometimes to, um, to connect in the way that we need to, and then how satisfying and beautiful it is when we finally do. Those are things that I just love to write about. I love to write about the human experience. And uh, I, I definitely think Superhero is a companion piece with Next to Normal. Next to Normal was, was, was something I started writing when I was 24 years old. Wow. And um, I, I think that I was closer, obviously, to my younger years at that point. I was writing, um, having just been um, a teenager and, and, and was drawing on a lot of that experience. I wasn't yet a, 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 a father. Um, I was getting married two years later. Superhero now is 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 really about the father, the parent side of 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 it for me, um, and uh, it's still my my desire to to bring human themes to a show and 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 uh, and put myself on stage in terms of the things I'm I'm passionate about, the th- the things I'm thinking. There's there's so many personal aspects of my life in superhero, and I just feel like as a writer, that's been something I've always wanted to draw from, the, the personal experience. And, and the, uh, with Next to Normal, we would get people to come up and ask if, if the show is autobiographical in any way because of, of, of how people were affected by it. And what's so gratifying is that I've gotten a lot of the same questions about superhero. Um, and it's the same answer. There are parts of it that are drawn from my, my life. So yes, it's, it's autobiographical in some sense, but, but the major thing at the center of it isn't. And I'm... I'm uh, gratified that the show is speaking in such a way that people have that question. Wow. I, I, I can see that a lot. Um, and I, I wonder, I wonder too, cause I speak to a lot of writers. I wonder where some of this comes from. And I think a lot of it is if you're a good writer, you have to be a very observational person. And then it's just a little bit, or maybe a lot bit of imagination to take what could be like this this small amount of a of an idea of a story that you observe to somebody else or that even may have happened to you and and make it into this big thing. Yeah. So yeah. so it's really it's impressive to me how you can do that sort of thing. And then even more impressive though that you said Dexter Normal was written with the songs first. Because yes. then you got to go back. Yes. Yes. And write the script. Would you do that again? I'm it open seems, to anything. Anything that really gets hard. Anything that gets gets you rolling. Uh Brian and I just love to write songs together. And that the other thing about Next Normal was that I don't think either of us were convinced in any way that that was going to be our show. It was it was the first show we were working on. It actually came out of a ten minute musical uh, assignment at the BMI Musical Theater Workshop, and I think we just we both thought it was going to be one and done. We would do this, and but we started working on something else, and then Brian or I would say, "Hey, let's write another song for Feeling Electric," which is what it was called at that time. Let's just write another Feeling Electric song. And we just kept writing them. And finally, we, we, we looked at each other and said, look, if we want to write these many songs for it, we should probably see if we can actually make a musical out of it. So I think that that that, that sort of first album quality to, um, to Next to Normal, it, it, it was going to be unwieldy. It was going to be kind of all over the place. We were figuring it out. We were young. We were trying to support ourselves, which I still try to do as a writer. <laughs> um, but but uh, we, we, we just didn't know the way it was going to go. And looking back, there's so many angels who came to our aid to to help us get through that and to believe in us. The Larson Foundation, who gave us a grant to do a workshop at a point when I thought the show might might have been over. 
Um, of course, Second Stage, David Stone, um, you know, on and on. They're just people who always believed in that show. And um, so, so, so I, I think, I think to say, well, it, it should have been this methodical process. It's just where we were in our lives and, and, and how we came to Next Normal. It was just never going to be that way. Huh. The, the, the show, um, you mentioned that uh, you got a grant. I was, I was going to ask next, um, when, when you're creating a musical based on music first, uh, is that the, is that harder? Was it harder in your experience to get financing, to get a production team behind you? Or do you like, you go to the, with the script and they say, I'm going to give you money for that script versus I'll give you money for those, those songs. You mean something like next to normal? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think the thing that that we did, and and I'm sure other other young writers do, is is just try to get some buzz out there, get get your songs uh, performed, uh, get people to talk about it. Kurt Deutsch was someone uh, who who was instrumental. He um, he uh, committed to a concert uh, reading through his label Shikaboom, um, and this was in 2002, and 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 helped us get Sherry Renee Scott and Norbert Leo Butts to perform, um, and Greg, Greg Naughton, um, to perform a, a concert version. And there were a lot of people there that night. And even though the show wasn't ready by any stretch, people remembered it. People were talking about it. And, uh, so, so when the Larson grant came and we did a workshop at the village theater, um, and we had applied, I believe to the O'Neill, um, people were just just aware of the show, and even though we didn't get into the O'Neill at that at that point, um, people were were talking about it and recommending it, and somehow it found its way to Nymph, and uh, suddenly we were at the New York Musical Theater Festival, and that was a huge um, a huge step for us. Uh, we had Anthony Rapp and Amy Spanger in the show, and Joe Cassidy, and um, the show was three hours, although David Stone likes to say it was six. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but you could tell there was something happening with it. People were having. An emotional response to it. Um, so that was really the point where uh, finally people were coming forward and saying, "We we we see a production in this show's future." But um, but we we just did everything we could to keep the ball in the air. And um, you do that on your own, but also you need people that say, "I believe in this piece. I'm going to give you this opportunity, and I know it's going to pay off sometime down the road." Well, obviously, uh, you did. You get the the Pulitzer Pulitzer for drama <laughs> for that. Did you see that coming? No, no, you can't see that coming. How can anyone see that coming? It oh, was uh, it was unbelievable, and um, I, I still can't believe it. It's it's, um, it's just an extraordinary um, feeling to 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 have that moment. And um, do you remember I, where you were when you first were told? Yes, I do remember uh, because. Um, the way it works, or the way it worked for 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 us, is um, we were told the I think either Friday or Saturday before it was announced um, that we were in consideration, and that we just needed to let our our press people know where we were, where we were going to be on Monday at three, which is they announce it. Mm-hmm. Goes, I think it goes online, and it's instantaneous. So I was in the middle of tech for American Idiot. This was April of two thousand ten. So uh, I was sitting with with Tom Hulse in um, in the theater, and uh, we were just talking. I said, "Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I told him the story, and and so maybe at three p.m. I'll get a phone call. We'll see." And at three p.m. I got a phone call from David Stone, and I just I just started 
um, shouting expletives up and down the aisle. I just couldn't couldn't believe it. And it was a wonderful place to get that news because I was around the, my theater family. Right. And uh, Michael Mayer announced it from the uh, microphone on stage. And, and actually, they were filming uh, a documentary that eventually became Broadway Idiot. And so there's footage, I guess, of 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 me doing this and, and yelling, and the <laughs> cast coming up, and everyone hugging me, and it was beautiful. And then and then Brian and I came to um, um, Michael Hartman's office, and we just were we we didn't know where we were, and uh, it was it was quite a quite an honor. It still is, and um, I just yeah, I still can't believe it. That's incredible. I, did it did it change your your uh, the career trajectory at that point or like because next to normal had already I think probably catapulted you to a new level, but did that affect anything in in a, in a different way? It definitely does because it um it it is now the thing that defines defines me and you even when you read the 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 bio that's the first thing and it's yep. and and I'm I'm usually um, referred to as a Pulitzer Prize winning author and that's um that gives you goosebumps and I, I i've had an interesting road my my first show on broadway ran for 10 days so i've i've really experienced the highs and the lows i had a an 18 month old child at that point i had just quit jobs that i was doing to support myself i had to go back to those jobs with the uncertainty of of whether anything was going to work out for me in the way that I was, I was hoping I'd be able to, able to have a career in this. I had the show Feeling Electric mm-hmm. um, that was in development, but um, who knew how that was going to go? And um, and then suddenly, that show in the middle of a of a financial crisis, uh, you open the small musical on Broadway that finds its way. Who would have Who would have saw that coming? Uh, and everything that came after it just just was unbelievable to me. And and um, just beyond expectations. So, so yes, it definitely defines you in terms of an of an award and um, and putting you on a certain level. But it also was was what made me feel like, okay, I'm I'm I think I'm going to be able to have a career. I think I'm going to be able to to work in this art form, and um, and I can hopefully push some things that are passionate to me. That because next to normal, there are a lot of people that hearing that subject matter would probably say. You can't do a musical about that. There were plenty of people who did say that, um, but now, if you open up a conversation with something that might seem a little unorthodox, they'll they might say, "Now, okay, tell me more." Let Come me, from let me away. Come from away. Perfect example, right? Yeah, a, a musical about nine eleven. I wouldn't have guessed that would have been one of my favorite musicals of all time, right? We were we were instructed at at, at BMI. We were always uh, people always mentioned uh, breaking the mold breaking new ground, trying to find a way to move the needle forward. And we, we looked at the musicals that did that. And of course, you can never know as a writer if you're ever going to be able to achieve that. And I would never say it. Um, I'm too respectful of, of this art form to ever assume anything um, about what I bring to it. But um, I do feel like Next to Normal came out of the challenge that was laid to us to find shows that were unexpected and and created an exhilarating experience in the theater that said to people, oh, wow, you can do that. Because that's those kinds of shows for me, Company, Into the Woods, Cabaret, those are the things that made me want to be a writer. Mm-hmm. Well, where, where I guess, did you, well, let's back that up, back up that conversation, I guess, a little bit. To the very beginning, uh, you were saying at a young age, like you did piano, you did classical, but um, I don't think, did, I don't recall you saying why you got into theater and musical theater. Well, when I was a kid, uh, my grandparents would take me to 
the matinees on Broadway. So we saw Peter Pan and, um, and I saw Cats and I saw a chorus line. Um, and, um, it was something that I just associated with, with family gatherings and, and, um, because I was so into the classical and then into the singer songwriter, um, I wasn't seeing that trajectory for myself. And it was really when I got to Columbia and Rita introduced me to Brian and we wrote what's called the varsity show. It's a, it's a book musical written by students about Columbia life. And it's got a rich history, Rodgers and Hart, Rodgers and Hammerstein, Janine Tesori, Terrence McNally, just some of the people who worked on the varsity show when they were at Columbia. That was the that was the thing where I where I got the bug because it was it was a process unlike anything I'd ever been through. Writing songs for other voices, multiple voices, writing comedy songs, um, telling a story through song, and watching an audience respond to it, um, hoping they'll laugh, hoping they'll cry. I remember. Um, when I was a senior, Brian and I wrote our second varsity show, and it was the, the the premise was about three students at Columbia, and God and the devil have a bet about whether their four years at Columbia will make them sell their soul or not. <laughs> and it was it was personal story for me because I was considering some job opportunities that were going to take me um, outside of of my dreams. And you were you were at school for economics. I was an economics major, and um, you know these are these are wonderful jobs and. Um, but I knew they weren't the jobs for me. And I felt like I would would be going after what I considered to be more stability and 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 um and money at that point, uh, at the expense of something that I had grown up dreaming I, I would do. So um I got a job offer, I turned it down and went into the uncertain world of piano bar and teaching piano lessons and anything else I could do to 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 find my way um and and writing. And that was a scary decision, but it was the it was the decision that I had built up to. And so writing that show was very cathartic for me. And I remember um, hearing a student beg someone for a ticket because it was sold out and they heard so much about it. And they said to someone, um, come on, you've seen it. This is my one chance to see it. And I just thought, oh my God, I've I've made something that someone feels that passionate about. What a what a great feeling that my personal story is matters. So that was really the 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 point where I thought this is what I want to do. I want to I want to tell these stories and 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 write songs. That's interesting that that you said that the 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 person who was begging again. I I suspect that the people who really want to hear it, the people that that are passionate about that they 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 relate to it. They have to because it's an emotional response to be that to want to get into something that much. Yes, and and I I. Do you find that in your career, or have you found that in in that, um, I guess maybe stage door experiences or fan experiences, where where you have people come up and like thank you for allowing them to express themselves through through your work because they're they're too afraid or they have some other reason why they can't talk about it in the same way. It means the world to me, and I've been fortunate that um, I've had. Um, people come up to me and share their experiences and 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 their feelings about the work and what it's meant to them. I'll never forget when Brian and I were in previews for Next Normal on Broadway, there was a, a teenage boy who came up to us and said he had been diagnosed bipolar a few months earlier and um, he wanted to, to thank me because um, he felt like he had something that he could point to and tell his... Um, tell his friends about that's that's what he was going through, and um, 
And then recently on Superhero, because at the center of Superhero is is, is loss, the, the the loss of a, of a father, husband. Um, and we've had people who have experienced that in their lives. And, and again, someone came up and, and said that they felt like they had that that the show gave them something to to talk about, and and it was cathartic, and 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 they could, um, uh, they could reference in talking to their son, and um, that's just that that's that's why I do it. Um, you can never predict what people are going to take away from your piece, and I've, as I said, I've been through I've been through every version of that, <laughs> um, and even on the things that that take something like Next to Normal, and you know there are people who will go to Next to Normal and not have that experience. Um, but, um, what, what, what you can feel collectively, what I felt the next normal and what I'm feeling at superhero, um, is, is, is people breathing with the piece and, and experiencing something, um, that, that feels personal, uh, and cathartic. And, um, and when people come up to me and share that, that it's made them feel that way. Um, there was, a, there was a, a young girl last night who came up to me and, and said that, um, she related to. Simon, the the teenage boy at the center of a superhero, and that um, she was going to come back. I mean, someone who would who related to it so personally and didn't feel like it had it had pushed her away from the piece, but it pulled her to it. Um, I just that's that's the greatest compliment I can receive. It sounds like like free therapy. Not that they're you know they're paying for tickets, but in a lot of cases, I think, um, especially in this country, and I've said this before on this podcast too, that that people are afraid to talk about mental health. Mm. And and I the way that you just described how people come up to you and share their stories it sounds to me like you know they can point to that and say oh that's how I'm feeling that's I don't know how to talk about it I've never been trained how to talk about my feelings properly but that's it. Yep. And and it's it's a beautiful thing to me to hear about this. And and it I understand you know from a from an outsider's perspective who someone who can't play piano and always wish that he could. Um, why just, but you know, I love music. So I wish that I could just, you know, I feel music. I close my eyes and like, you know, even at raves, at clubs, like the, they turn up the bass mm-hmm. because you want to feel that. You want to yeah. feel, you want to be connected. Music, it's vibration. It connects you with other people. And then if you're going to add the emotional story behind it, just beautiful. I think art is the ultimate teacher. I think that there's nothing that gives us a sense of empathy and understanding and connection than an experience in art and to get in, to get inside someone's mind um, if you're an actor to play another role to literally step inside someone's shoes um, it's why it's maddening to me anytime I hear of people trying to cut arts programs or arts education yeah uh, the statistics are just so um, telling of what it gives our kids and to have my kids grow up in this world um, to see this community up close it's the greatest education I could I could give them so um, I think anytime we can experience that, and if something does speak to you personally, you're, it's going to affect you. It's going to change your way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just that's just what's going to happen. You're going to ruminate on something, and if you see, if you're a young kid and you see a movie that depicts um, the dangers of bullying and shows someone who is um, being bullied rise above that, I would hope that you're going to come out of that saying, "I'm going to speak up when I see that. I'm not going to be someone who does that." So. Telling these stories, it's just so important, and especially, I think, for, for, for the young people in the world right now. Yeah. Yeah, that's, it's just beautiful. I, as a father myself, too, I, I think about my kids, and I always, I want the best for them. I, I hope that they will do well. Um, you know, like you said earlier, that you, you just, 
they're going to find their own way in the world and you hope that you can teach them as best as you can because you can't always be there for them. Yep. And then even some of the stuff I teach them, I'm sure, is probably not not best for them because we're all, you know, imperfect. But your your kids growing up in this in this field, in this area, in, in theater, I mean, this is New York City. This is the heart of it. This is like where some of the best of the best always come and always perform. And, you know, you, you are a case in point. You live here, right? One of the best. Do it's you- amazing. And, and I mean, if I look, I look at the shows that my kids have now grown up in, they were a little young for Next Normal and American Idiot, but Bring It On and If Then and Head Over Heels and Jag a Little Pill and Dave and, and now Superhero um, SpongeBob, you know, mm-hmm. it's just like every every one of these shows teaches them something, brings them to a world of imagination, of uh, of diversity and and acceptance and love, and um and that's just the shows that I've worked on, and then they're the, all the shows I brought them to. So um, I can see it's 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 affected them in this beautiful way. My son is now playing Joseph. He's going to be. Um, <laughs> I was going to ask if they're getting into it too. Freaky Friday, another one that they just loved, and um, actually my my son played played a role in that musical last summer um, and my daughter um, did the Lion King at school and and they just love it it's just it, it really opens up their 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 hearts uh, in this beautiful way and and I, I feel fortunate they get to share it with them so they sound they sound a little older you said in high school and stuff when when did they realize or have they realized yet that daddy's a big deal well they're not there so my so the ages are um, 13 nine and six oh um, they're um it's 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 funny because in the theater community, I'll, or or if I'm I'm around theater people, sometimes they'll come up to me and and uh, someone will will bring a next to normal uh, playbill or CD for me to sign, and uh, it's funny because my my kids their eyes will 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 widen. Who was that? What is that? What does that mean? <laughs> um, and, you know, we've 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 me and and Rita have done um have, have gone to great lengths to to normalize everything. You know, it's it, there there are certain things that are hard. It's very public. Um, I'm opening a show tomorrow. They're they're um, they're going to celebrate this with me, um, but you know, there's for me, there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of tension. There's a lot that's unknown, and and I'm going to go through a very human experience tomorrow. Um, but it'll be nice to have them with me to just I'll just look at them and say that's that's what matters. It's interesting that, to think about, I guess, being the child of someone that that is idolized by others because the people who who would idolize like a celebrity um they don't see the everyday side they don't see the human side the emotional side and then your kids of course like they're with you they're every day they're yeah. they see they see you in a completely different way that nobody else most likely ever will and so it makes total sense to me why they would not see daddy or mommy or whoever it is you know if like if you're Julia Roberts kids then at what point are you like, wow, she's one of the most respected, well, you know, best actresses in the industry, and she brings me to parties, and I have access to all these celebrities that nobody else knows about. Like, it's so commonplace to them. And probably, like, you bring your kids now, right? And, like, how many people, how many people that nobody else will ever get to meet will be at your opening night tomorrow that you've worked with? Like, Lin-Manuel, for example. I don't know if he'll be there tomorrow, but you've worked with him multiple times. But what's great is that Everyone in this community has treated my my family with such love, and um, Lin Manuel and um, my oldest son, really all my kids, but um, but Michael and Lin forged a bond early on. Lin was at his birthday parties. Um, I have a great picture of when of, of Michael and Lin when I when I finally took Michael to Hamilton, um, and Lin was at his bar mitzvah, <laughs> um, and 
I, I think we all realize that um, family relationships, loyalty, um, kindness, um, these are the things that that matter and sustain us because the topsy-turvy world of what we do is just, it's you just never know what it's going to be. Mm-hmm. But the things that you can rely on, people who love you, people who who care about you, when, when high fidelity didn't take and um, I had so many people reach out to me and congratulate me and say that they were there for me. I'll never forget that. And that's what kept me going. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it's really, it's, it's been normal for the kids because um, Cameron Crowe, who I'm working with on Almost Famous, who's, who's become such a, 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 an important and wonderful friend to me. Um, he's been hanging out with my kids and, 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 um, I, I, I sometimes look at that and I, I think, do you know who this is? <laughs> do you know this person is meant to the lives of your mother and me? I mean, we were, we were, we were first dating when singles was out and my wife had a poster in her dorm room. And I mean, this, this is unbelievable to suddenly be side by side, but then, then you're just people and, and you have things in common and you have similar passions. And I think the more normal it feels, the better, because I certainly wouldn't want to drop by and have people treating me in, in a strange way. And mm-hmm. I just want to be Tom and, and come by and, and, and be down to earth with everybody. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, the, gosh, that's, that's incredible. Like to, to think about, um, like you show up and you are the person that you are the person that other people have idolized, but don't feel that way. It's just this weird dichotomy that, I mean, it's, 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 that, look, it's, it's, I, I pinch myself continuously. Right, in Pulitzer this Prize winning, world. but even time award winning. But not just Tony that; award, yeah. just the people I'm around. We were doing a photo shoot for Jagged Little Pill, um, maybe a month ago, and me and Alanis Morissette were taking a picture together. And I said, "If you told my college self that I would be here <laughs> posing with you for pictures, I would, I would never believe it." And and here we are, and we're friends and and collaborators. Mm-hmm. Uh, Green Day, the the Go Go's. Um, all those artists, those brilliant artists on SpongeBob. Oh, Head Over Heels, I um, love that music. Thank Such you. Such good music. Thank you. Yeah. So, so it's just, I'm, I'm doing what I dreamed of doing, which is not just creating um, art, but working with the people that I've grown up uh, idolizing and right. suddenly find myself in the room with. Wow. Um, actually, I, I wanted to get to this at the very beginning and we just glossed right over it, but I want to I wanna get you to explain for the listeners and for me, the difference between music, orchestra, uh, music supervisor, orchestrator, arranger, and composer. Okay. So composer means composing the music mm-hmm. or uh, if you're composer lyricist, um, music and lyrics. Um, so composer is without Composer is just writing. Yeah. Yep, you're a writer. Um Orchestrator means that you get compositions handed to you in some form, and then it is your job to um, to write the orchestral parts, whatever that orchestra is going to be. So, do you know, or do you get to pick what instruments are? You in it? You, you pick at the beginning of the process, and there are a lot of factors that determine that. Like, give me a triangle over here. Yeah, if, well, if you're going to have a, a big percussion rig, you're going to have strings, you're going to have horns. Um, so, uh, so the orchestrator really—that's that's the job of the orchestrator. Um, the arranger, um, and an arranger can be any kind of arrangements. I mean, there are vocal arrangements where you're writing the vocal parts. Um, for 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 the arrangements, it's really if if you take a, a composition and then you continue to work on it in rehearsal to add sections to it, um, to to maybe add a different feel to it. Um, but basically to, to continue to hone the composition in a way 
that um, that you 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 um, augment what was originally given to you to serve the show. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of arrangements I did on on SpongeBob, for example. Um, if you look at the song "No Control," which um, which came from um, David Bowie and Brian Eno, and um, is 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 a brilliant, very moody, evocative song, but I was going to have to figure out vocal arrangements, and then it was going into dialogue section, so there was underscoring, and then this little section would suddenly have to drop down, so I would have to deviate from the original feel in the song. So, so you're you're rearranging the song, you're a, a little bit, um, and if you're the arranger, orchestrator, which I've been um, on things like Head Over Heels, American Idiot, you can hear there are there are there are times where the form of the song is a little different mm-hmm. than the original. Um, the, the, the colors within the tone, um, you know, taking something like 21 guns, starting it just on strings and making it smaller, um, or what's her name even at the end. So those are all where I think of arrangement. And then when I get the arrangement to a place where it's ready to undergo orchestration, does that make sense? Yes. Yes. Um, and then music supervisor, um, basically means that you oversee the entire musical element. So, um, a music director who you'll work with. Um, but get to sit back and hear the way the music is starting to sing and feel, and mm-hmm. and and then give notes and work with that. Work on the sound. Work with work, work with sound design. Um, you know, really. And and then if there are if there are um, obligations like appearing on uh, on on programs, you know, talk shows or doing uh, performances, all of that. Basically, just making sure that you're always speaking for the music, um, whatever. Hmm whatever the demands are. Do you have a, a favorite? A favorite what? A, f- a favorite role? <laughs> um, I, I think I like I like composer. I, I, yeah. I, I've always wanted to be a writer. And, and all of it is a form of writing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but to create a song from scratch and, um, and have it be your thing is, is I think, still the thing that and I Watch it travel for. through its many forms. Yeah. 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 SpongeBob really impressed me because it, it did feel like a cohesive... You know, it was a cohesive music musical, and all the all the songs were basically written by completely different people. So when you were handed all this music, did you work with the the artist to to make everything, or were you just like, we have a scene here, here's an outline, give me something, and then I'll arrange it later? It was really very trusting process. Uh, the the authors would would work with um, Kyle Jarrow and Tina Landau. Um, Tina would 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 get a demo in some form and then um, have a back and forth with notes. And when it was ready to come to me, then I would do the arrangement, have it have it ready for rehearsal. So it would just be a piano vocal. Mm-hmm. We usually had um, just piano and drums in rehearsal, um, and then we would rehearse the song and and um, and then I would orchestrate it for the production. Um, I think this the, the best compliment that that I've been given, which you just said, and and which thankfully um, I think another people a number of people said was that the the score did feel cohesive, and I think I think the the big reason is that those all of those writers wrote fantastic theater songs. They mm-hmm. spoke so honestly for the characters, and they nailed the 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 moment they were asked to write for. So nothing felt out of place. So the cohesiveness comes from the synergy. That was created by all of those writers bringing their their skills and their passion to the project. Yeah, yeah, it it did seem like a completely 
like uniform linear thing to me. And I, I actually forgot, I, I knew about it going in, but I forgot afterwards that it was all the, the original authors, the writers were all completely different groups yeah. or, or bands or whatnot. So yeah, it, you know, I guess that speaks to, to a little bit of you or a lot <laughs> bit of your talent to bring it all together. There's but, a, yeah. I used to love family ties. I should oh, say, I still love family ties. And there was an episode that I, that I loved where, um, Michael J. Fox's character, Alex, Alex P. Keaton, um, ends up, I think, on two prom dates or two dates to a dance. And at the end of the episode, or towards the end, he has to share a first. He's, he's managing to, ju- to, to, to do it. And then, and then there are, uh, then they ask for like the dance. He has to do the, the, the spotlight dance. And two, um, two girls come onto the floor and he just sort of, you see the camera, I think, from his back. And then he just kind of faints. <laughs> and I had this image in my head of, of, of a similar thing where I would, I would suddenly walk into the room of all the SpongeBob writers. There would just be like one day that they would all show up in a room. <laughs> We're just like, faint at seeing all of them in front of me and have, having to answer. Um, but they, uh, I can't say enough about how supportive they were. And, um, you know, they showed up in Chicago at opening night. Mm-hmm. They were at the Tony Awards. Um, it was really, and again, people that I have uh, admired and, and, and have been great inspiration to me. So it was a real privilege to work on their material. That's what I would have loved to have met Bowie. He seemed, seems like he was a nice... Nice guy. I, that would have been, yeah. He he's meant a lot to me, and um, uh, I, I felt honored that we had a composition of his in our show. Yeah, yeah. So you've got um, not an egot. You're missing the Oscar, but you've got what, an egg. I'm the Grammy, so I've got <laughs> yeah. a. I've got yeah. a. I don't know what would you call it. Are you credited? You're credited with the Grammy because your work for um, with uh, uh, Green Day, right? No, no. Just um, I was just music supervisor. Oh, so um, okay. So, but we yes, okay. the album did yes. win uh, a Grammy, which um, okay. which was a great thrill. Well, so you've received a bazillion awards anyway. Um, looking, I guess, looking ahead, is there is there something you want to do that you haven't gotten to do yet? Um, I, I would love to. I think um, work more in film. I just have have been, as I mentioned, you know, watching the the Superman mm-hmm. film. Um, Films just meant always meant a great deal to me, and and uh, to get to write a a movie musical, to um, to show up and 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 see um, on the big screen something you've created, I think that would be um, that would be a great thrill for me. We didn't even touch on that. Yeah, the you you're writing for you've written for TV too. Like, how did that come into your career? Really through theater. Um, as 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 we've all seen, there've been uh, there's been so much uh, of of theater people. Going out into film and and um, television and 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 pop music and and then people from those worlds coming into theater. Um, so uh, really, just I've, I've gotten pulled into projects. John Logan, mm-hmm. um, who uh, I'm again I'm writing superhero with, um, pulled me into Penny Dreadful uh, to write a song. And um, the writers of, of of Royal Pains were looking to make a musical episode, and I got. Um, I, I went in and met with them and, and thankfully got hired and had a blast doing that. So, um, so it's really just been, uh, when an opportunity comes and, and, um, especially if people are looking to do a, a musical, they want people who have been through that process. Mm-hmm. So, um, it's, it's been great when I've gotten that chance. And, um, the, the other thing that I'm really excited about and it's still, it's still being, being worked on, but it looks like, um, after 23 years of, of, um, of trying to get a record deal, it looks like I'm actually going to be making a record. It's, oh, congrats! Uh, it's not not official, but um, but there is there there are talks and that that I'm going to get to do this and 
that would be a great thrill for me because as I said, it's something I've, I've always dreamed of doing. And, um, I just have this idea in my head that I'm, I'm, I'm going to attempt to do this born to run kind of thing where I just want to create a soundscape. I want, I want to have orchestral stuff. I want to, um, I want to do a, a, a sort of throwback record. And, and if I could maybe even try to record it in the way that it was recorded, um, analog mm -hmm. in the, in, in back in the, in the seventies, um, and eighties and probably ninety two. Would you do any any vocals, or would it be all orchestration? Yeah, the songs I've no songs I've written, songs uh, maybe maybe songs from shows. Maybe I get friends to come in and and do uh, do duets or trios, whatever I can. But um, it'd just be great to make make a make that kind of a statement because I've I've I used to take my vinyl and arrange them on my floor. I would take all the Billy Joel albums and arrange them chronologically, and and I still to this day read the liner notes and. Um, so I, I just that would be a that would be a, a tremendous moment for me to to actually make a record. Sounds like you need to partner up with Ben Folds. I would love to partner up with Ben Folds any any time. He's a um, I met him. He um, back in two thousand four, I believe. I was part of this wonderful concert, um, which uh, was a, a concert version of Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, mm -hmm. and uh, Ben Folds performed Gray Seal, which was which was thrilling to watch. So um, he's, uh, I, I was actually talking with Brian Yorkie. We were talking about cassette players. And I said, I still remember when you gave me mixtapes of all the Ben Folds music to introduce me to. So um, yeah, I think he's a brilliant writer and mm -hmm. uh, I'm just a killer pianist. And so yeah, anytime I could be in the room with him, he, he's great. the, he's, what is it? The artistic consultant for the Lincoln Center. Oh, really? Or uh, oh, Sorry, the Kennedy Center in DC. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he's the first ever. So he's like bringing... You know, bringing modern, I guess, uh, younger the younger crowd to the older style of music, and That's he's really done cool. like with Sarah Bareilles and Regina Spektor, and uh, a, a couple other pop artists that he's he's brought them in and had done duets with them with a full orchestration behind them. That's so cool. There's yeah. an album that he recorded. I don't know if it was on, on a college campus, but it's just Ben Folds live, and it's him just at the piano, and yeah. I listen to it all the time. It's just so fantastic to hear him on the piano. He rips it up, and oh, it's so fun. And um, yeah, those songs are so great. Well, you are uh, you're you're pretty good yourself. So so don't <laughs> don't you. sell yourself short. Um, so we've got three closing questions here that I ask everybody on the podcast. Great. Very simply, number one, what motivates you? Um, achievement to um to every day do something that I, I haven't done and and to keep challenging myself to to make stuff that matters um, and my family to 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 not just be able to provide for them but to put things into the world that make them proud and that affect them. What advice would you give to your younger self and younger people listening now starting out down a similar path? I would say um, find the things that matter to you. Make sure to always educate yourself be looking for inspiration everywhere. Don't get caught up in anything that feels easy or lazy. Um, this wasn't a problem for me growing up as much, but you can always be checking a phone. You can always be looking at a screen. Um, stare into space. Let your mind wander. Um, because there are so many times where I thought to myself, I'm tired. I don't want to get on the piano today. All right, I'll get on the piano. And then suddenly I wrote, I'm at the mountains. Hmm. So... Just see every day as an opportunity to have something in the world that was not there. <laughs> Last question. If you could only see one show for the rest of your life, but you can see it as many times as you <laughs> want, what would you see? Um, and this is one 
this is one Broadway, I mean, one one musical, one In, anything? Interpret it as you will. Oh, so like show, show, any show. Show, show, anything you want. Wow. I made it super easy. <laughs> um, you know, I think if I could see one show the rest of my life, it would be Into the Woods. I just, um, I get lost in that story and that score, and I always hear new things in it. And what it says, what it just speaks to me in terms of its themes, its beauty. Um, yeah, I just, um, I just adore that show, and it meant so much to me. I was, uh, I played the wolf and the prince in high school, <laughs> and uh, I tell, uh, I tell James Lapine all the time. I say this, this show really changed my life. I'm so grateful to you for writing it, and of course to Stephen Sondheim. Yeah. I think it's funny how Bonnie Milligan is always like, I want to be the baker's wife. You know, she's on Twitter all the time saying that. She would be a great baker's wife. Yeah. She yeah. would be a great baker's wife. I, yes, think that, I think it needs to happen. You heard it here not first, because she's been saying it for a long time. <laughs> we are just here for support. Yes. <laughs> so you are on social media at Tom Kit Music on Instagram. Yes. Are you on, you're, I can find you on Twitter. Are you on Twitter? Not Twitter. Yeah, not, not Twitter. Facebook. No, just, just, just the Instagram. Just account. the Instas. Okay. And then everybody listening, of course, get your tickets to see Superhero at Second Stage. It's uh, 2st.com is their website. And it's a limited run. Opens uh, opens tomorrow, which uh, this is going to air. Or we'll air this episode next week. So it will have just opened and it's running through. March 31st at this point hopefully it will uh, continue beyond that I don't know if that's possible <laughs> you can get more of me at theater underscore podcast on Instagram and Twitter facebook.com slash official theater podcast listen and subscribe and share and rate this podcast to get more of these amazing interviews and we are produced by Jillian Hockman and thank you to Jukebox the Ghost for the intro and outro music and once again Tom Kitt thank you so much for taking the time this has been a wonderful conversation thank you my pleasure Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.